I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. This week on The Trade Guys, they discuss the inaugural meeting of the U.S.-EU Trade and Technology Council, recent remarks by Ambassador Tai on agricultural trade, and what's happening on the Hill with reconciliation. Tune in for all that and more on this week's episode of The Trade Guys. All right. Hi, Scott. Hi, Bill. Hope you are both doing well this week. There's certainly no shortage of things going on in Washington, of course, Brussels and Pittsburgh. Let's get started today by talking about the inaugural meeting of the US-EU Trade and Technology Council. It's kicking off today in Pittsburgh and continuing through tomorrow. Both sides, the Europeans and the Americans, are aiming for, quote unquote, concrete outcomes. How likely is that? Well, it's a little early for outcomes. In fact, I, I think what this meeting is probably more about is determining what the agenda is for the overall council. They've tabled seven topics and they've got a 14-page draft, which says they don't really have an agenda at this point. So I do think there are some, uh, maybe two or three of the seven items uh, that they've articulated that are where, where the U.S. and European interests align. And that's, I think, what you need to make this happen. I mean, it's an interesting moment because if you're a European looking at the U- this U.S. administration, this is your best opportunity to get some stuff done. I mean, this is, a, this is the, an administration that's embraced multilateral engagement that shares some of the same uh, points of view on the big issues as European governments do. And, and so there's an opportunity here. But uh, we tend to, to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory on these uh, transatlantic dialogues pretty frequently. And so I think, I think agenda management and, and, and actually getting to the things where we have common interests in, the, in a similar outcome will be the key. But whether they do that or not, I don't know. Scott's made some important points. These things do have a sad history. This is the fourth or fifth one. And one cynic about the process said, the real test is not what happens today. The real test will be who comes to the, thir- the third meeting. Because if the minister stops showing up, then you know that it's, it's uh, you know, sand is leaking out of the bag and it's, it's ultimately going to turn into the giant nothing burger that the last groupings uh, did as well. But I, I give them credit for sincerity. I think both sides really want to accomplish something with this. Uh, it's not a scam and it's not trying to, uh, you know, paper over differences. It's an effort to really tackle uh, some important issues. That said, I think the EU is being clever uh, in the sense that in talking to them, they are well aware that previous uh, dialogues have foundered on what people in the trade business refer to as as iron rice bowls, you know, pockets of of established protection that are built into the economic fabric of the country that nobody wants to change. And we've talked about my favorite one uh, in the past, which is chickens. People are just in concrete on these things. And the EU idea was, let's not go over that ground again. That's that's a recipe for failure. And I think they're right about that. Let's focus on areas where there aren't any iron rice bowls, which are new areas of endeavor where there are not a lot of rules established and we can work together and cooperate on a, a joint approach. That ends up being a focus uh, on digital trade issues, among other things. 
And of course, this is an area where there may not be any global rules right now, but the EU is certainly doing its best to promulgate some via the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, uh, GDPR, the General um, Data Protection Regulation, the proposed uh, regulation on AI. So this is an area where I think the EU is going to, uh, over time, continue to point out that it has tackled these difficult issues and the United States hasn't. We don't have a policy. And the result is at the TTC, I think, on these issues, we end up playing defense because we're not there yet. Uh, That's partly Congress's fault and partly the fault, I think, of the last three administrations. That said, there are some issues. Scott mentioned, you know, I think the seven that they're focused on. There There are some issues where I think we can and will agree to cooperate today. And the two big ones uh, in my little corner of the world are export controls and investment screening, where I think you'll see uh, agreement to cooperate. The, the challenge in those areas and all the others really is taking an agreement to cooperate, which is, I think, all we'll get today, and turning it into a tangible outcome. What does agree to cooperate mean on export controls? Does it just mean you know sharing information? Do we meet four times a year and you know, talk about our mutual problems. That kind of happens anyway in, in the various multilateral regimes. Does it mean recreating uh, COCOM, for those of you that are of a certain age, which was the Cold War uh, uh, entity that allowed uh, countries to veto each other's exports and review each other's uh, license applications? Are we going to go that far? Are we going to uh, share information in advance of making decisions? Uh, so other countries can intervene and comment? Or are we only going to share information after we make decisions? Same for investment screening. What is the tangible outcome that that we're heading forward, uh, heading toward here? Uh, I don't think we're going to see those today. I think what we're going to see is a commitment to produce those outcomes. And then it will be up to the second or third meetings to see if you can put some, uh, some meat on the bones. I think Bill's right. And for me, the, 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 the step between polite information sharing and action in concert is finding common interests. And it's not clear to me we have, we've articulated what those common interests are. Most of the export control energy in the United States is focused on China. I'm not sure that's the case in Europe. And so we'll, we'll, we'll find those and we'll, we'll see. Obviously, first meeting, everybody's enthusiastic. All the, all the people with the, big, with the big titles are showing up. And uh, we'll see what happens. And Pittsburgh's a nice place, so good for them. And, and well chosen as a city that really has, uh, has reinvented itself, which is what uh, Secretary Armando said the other day. Uh, she, uh, uh, listeners know I used to work for the Senate for Pennsylvania for a long time and, and have enormous affection for Pittsburgh, which is the part of the state that he was from. And uh, they have reinvented themselves. And it's a, it's a success story. Uh, but there's a terrific cost. You know, the steel industry is uh, not gone, but uh, a shadow of what it used to be there. And uh, that's brought some good things, less pollution uh, for one and high tech and, and a lot of innovation. But there's been a terrific cost in unemployment, lost jobs, uh, you know, people leaving the area that uh, I think the people who live there have not forgotten And it, in the rush to say, oh, it's a new place. We shouldn't forget that there was a cost of getting there. Yeah, and it's a very different place than it was 50 years ago. So 
Scott, I think a couple of moments ago you said a key word that is in the back of everyone's mind this week, and that is China. The Europeans and Americans have both said this is not about China. This is about strengthening the transatlantic relationship. Is that true or is this an attempt to create a joint policy about China? I'm not sure this thing is about a joint agenda to deal with China, but our China policies and the Europeans' China policy matter in terms of finding common ground. Bill has made the point several times that Europe is either has a different view about China or is just a few years behind us in their perception of China being uh, somewhat of a menace to the world economy and the trading system. And so uh, Europe is, is not necessarily catching up. They certainly have very different views. They, 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 they want to continue with the export business. Uh, they're closer to sort of the, of what the fictitious Davos man than than the American uh, government people are uh, in terms of China's role in the world economy. So it's a, it's a point of difference. And it's while it's not what the conference is about, unless we can agree on action in concert that deals with China, we won't find a transatlantic opportunity. So at least that's my view. I agree to a point. I mean, it is about China. They're the 800,000-pound elephant lurking in the corner of the room that nobody wants to talk about, but it's there. And it's going to be an implicit topic in every conversation they have. I think the U.S. preference would be to more explicitly develop a joint strategy. I don't think the Europeans want to do that, or at least some of the Europeans don't want to do that. I think the French pretty clearly don't want to do that. I think that's been generally true. But the recent submarine uh, issue, they're still peeved, not without reason, on the, the lack of consultation grounds. And I think it's it's made it easier for Macron, who also is running for re-election in, I think, eight months or so, uh, to, you know, try to carve out an independent path. So I don't think you're going to see any kind of joint strategy or explicit statements about China. But I think that's what the Americans would, uh, would like to do, because Biden understands that it's too big a problem to take on unilaterally. Uh, Trump learned, well, I don't know if Trump learned it. We learned it from watching Trump. And it is an area where allies need to work together. It's going to be complicated to bring uh, uh, the EU along. What we've learned recently, thanks to to, uh, the Australia-UK submarine deal and also the Quad meeting, which was last Friday, of India, Australia, Japan, and the United States at the highest level in in the White House, was that, uh, you know, working together with friends and allies doesn't just mean the EU. There's a lot of other people out there that we could be working with as well to deal with China who are seem to be at least more than willing to uh, work together with us on that subject. This is one of these things that a Chinese phrase comes to mind, same bed, different dreams. So we, we have a different idea about what to do about China and what it poses in terms of its geopolitical nature. It is also true that in a lot of these areas, particularly the regulatory issues we were talking about before, there are material differences between the EU and the U.S. We've written now just yesterday or soon, one or the other, I forget which, will come out with our 10th paper on EU digital trade regulation. And what we're dealing with there, I think, is a European effort to um, use a regulatory approach to contain American high-tech companies that have been very successful in Europe. 
and really don't have, you know, this is Google, Facebook, the GAFA companies, Google, Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon, also Microsoft. And uh, the, you know, there's, there's not a lot of major European competitors for that. And there's a, a, an argument about this in Europe, about what to do about this. It's related to the debate that we've talked about before about the strategic autonomy question and what does that mean? And it means different things to different Europeans, but it's clear to some Europeans, it means that the way for Europe to advance its own technology profile is to do it by holding back the Americans. And in a way, it's it's the same issue that I've talked about in, in the context of China, that when you're in a race, there's only you know, two ways to win. You run faster or you trip the other guy. And I think my view has always been running faster is a better strategy, although there's a place for both. When it comes to technology development in Europe, they seem to be focused on the tripping strategy. You know, the way we win is we hold the Americans back, uh, which I think is a huge mistake. I mean, it's not good for our companies. There's no question about it. But it's not good for Europe either because it just means that uh, they will end up being a backwater in the technology race as other countries move ahead. So you both have talked about the need to cooperate on tangible goals and action in concert. And it seems like one of the more tangible policy buckets that could come out of the TTC relates to semiconductors. What would a good joint agreement on semiconductors look like? Heavens only knows. Look, uh, the, the European semiconductor business is basically the American semiconductor business. I mean, most of the investment in Europe in semiconductors is from American headquartered companies like Intel. And uh, most of the demand in Europe is for the, the non-leading edge. Smartphones and, and electronics are at the, at the cutting edge of, of, of semiconductor demand at the moment. The bulk of demand in Europe, as I understand it, and some of the new supply being developed right now are for autos and then the, the kinds of applications that are that don't require the latest technology. So it's kind of unclear to me what what we're going to work together on when it comes to semiconductors. Maybe it's just not object to each other's subsidies uh, for some time until there's uh, a sufficient capacity. But uh, but I don't really have a clear vision of what the what collaborating with Europe on semiconductors gets the semiconductor industry, whether in the United States or globally. I think it means working out supply chain kinks. There's a shortage. And there's a number of reasons for the shortage, and there's a drive to build new capacity, but that's not a short-term solution because it takes a while to bring new capacity online. And the shortage has been exacerbated by COVID because that's uh, shut down uh, assembly lines in, in various places, mostly in Asia. And they've had issues, including Malaysia is the example that comes to mind, which is a part of the semiconductor supply chain at the back end, the, the packaging and testing end of the of the process. And, but, you know, in a supply chain, if one unit shuts down, everything kind of grinds to a halt. There have been problems there. Uh, I'm not sure that Europe is at the center of either the problems or the solution, but one of the things they can agree to do is to examine our production, their production, and see if there are supply chain issues that, between us that can be solved and the governments can work together to do that. All right, well, let's turn now to a very easy topic, which is trade and agriculture. At a recent event hosted by the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, Ambassador Tai said the U.S. will keep pushing China to meet its phase one purchasing commitments right up until the deadline in December. She made a host of other comments during this speech relating to ag and trade. 
What does this tell us about the administration's trade policy? Is agriculture at the center? Is China at the center? Well, being under abuse has been at the center so far, and she continued to promote the fact that these policies were under review. I did note a focus on enforcement. And uh, look, I think enforcement is important, but it's actually necessary but not sufficient for really advancing economic growth in the farm sector. And uh, so it's what's unclear from her speech, or at least what I couldn't find, is a commitment to improving market access. And this is someplace where uh, it's American agriculture has been the beneficiary of sort of 20 years of the world improving their diet, mostly East Asia and the Pacific. But, but basically, as incomes rose through globalization, one of the first things that the people who benefited from uh, higher incomes did was they improved their diet. And that had demand for proteins. And, you know, protein demand in the form of pork means demand for soybeans from the United States. But all sorts of foodstuffs were in high demand. Now, look, agriculture was a trade problem, a nagging one between the U.S. and Europe since the end of World War II. And there are longstanding, really ugly debates over, over market access. Those seem to go to the sideline as farm prices picked up, demand picked up globally. And uh, we're now kind of at the end of that cycle. It's not that people aren't improving their, their diet, but now market access problems are cropping up again. And there isn't a, a clear agenda to work on them that I've heard articulated yet. So that for me is the challenge. Uh, yeah, and, and the ambassador talked about enforcement. That's a good thing. Um, and uh, getting China to fulfill its commitments. That's a good thing. Uh, but really, there's got to be a market access agenda here at some point, and it's not clear what it is yet. I agree with that. I think we'll we'll learn more on on Monday because I do want to mention that uh, Ambassador Tai is going to give what I think will be a major trade speech here at CSIS on uh, Monday morning, October fourth, uh, at 10 a.m. So those of you who are listening that are interested in what she has to say, tune in. I have um, no idea what she's going to say yet. But uh, it's, it'll be a good opportunity to find out if we have a policy or not on a variety of issues. I think in agriculture, Scott's right. What has been missing from most of what she talks about on a lot of subjects is a focus on mar- uh, market access. It's all labor and environment. And I think we need to remind her from time to time that there are other people in the country that want to sell stuff to people uh, and export stuff. And that's actually good for our economy when they do. And uh, that needs to be part of the focus. There also is another larger battle brewing uh, between the U.S. and the EU, which I doubt will come up today, uh, but it will come up. It already has been coming up and it'll come up more. Secretary Vilsack, our Secretary of Agriculture, has been, I think, leading the debate on this. But it really is a trade issue. And that is the differences between the U.S. and, and the EU over what kind of agriculture do we want to see in the future? And that is really uh, an examination of, of what the EU is calling their farm to fork initiative, uh, which is among other things. Basically, it's a, a drive for sustainability in the agriculture sector, which in practical terms means less reliance on pesticides and chemicals, more organic production. Uh, and uh, that sounds nice. If you look at it in trade terms, what that means is uh, going forward, what it may mean is uh, restrictions on uh, European imports of products that are not grown the way they want them to be grown, which means uh, products that contain GMOs, which has been a dispute we've had with them for a long time. 
uh, or increasingly products that are grown with various pesticides or chemicals that the EU has decided are, are, uh, are inappropriate. Secretary Vilsack's comments have, have basically framed this as a, an issue of uh, productivity versus sustainability, and that the European drive for sustainability is going to put a serious dent in, uh, in farm production and farm productivity, not only in Europe, but elsewhere if they don't let imports in, which means uh, you're going to see the price of food go up and you may see farm income go down. And the real gloomy people are predicting uh, famine, which is, I think, uh, an overstatement. On the other hand, what the Europeans will say, if we don't move to a sustainable market, we're going to aggravate the climate crisis. So we're, we're caught between, you know, uh, do we want to have a climate crisis or do we want to have a famine? And then, of course, one possibility is we don't do anything and then we'll have both. Or we do something and then we have both. You never know. Okay. This is not a new issue. We've been fighting with the Europeans about this, as Scott said, for, for 30 years, but it's coming up in a big way. Exactly. Yeah, this is about production and process methods, which is an old and, and frequently litigated topic in, in international trade. And uh, at some point you know, in, in industrial goods trade, for the most part, a widget is a widget. It doesn't really matter how you produce it. But in agricultural trade, we get hung up on production and process methods all the time. And it is, it's a very frustrating element for anybody who's involved in it. The international, particularly the processed agricultural products, companies and industries worry about this all the time and have a very difficult time complying with differential and inconsistent regulation that often has no effect on product safety. So they're really, they're really ugly little barriers. This is, a, this is an increase in the number of sort of ugly, ridiculous barriers that come in, in the form of agricultural regulations or agricultural process methods. Uh, there, were, there was a European push for animal husbandry issues, which turned out when you picked it apart was really about saving their dairy farms with seven uh, herds of seven cattle near the Arctic Circle and finding ways to, to keep what are basically inefficient and unproductive operations fully subsidized to keep the farmers on the land. So there's lots of things going on and you pick this apart and lots of lots of social policy gets wrapped into agricultural policy. So they, they're tough issues. They they. When, when it comes to U.S.-Europe trade, there's really nothing new under the sun when it comes to these measures. We just call them by different names, you know, and, and sustainability is no less a, sort of a weasel word in this case than the uh, animal husbandry or the other names it's been called before. But nothing, you know, nothing tugs at the heartstrings as much as the family farm and the family farmer. There's this deep emotional attachment. A hundred years ago, it was a huge percentage of American employment. Now it's down to, I think, less than 2% of American jobs are on the farm. But uh, in the 19th century, it was, I think, a majority. And people grew up on farms. They have ancestors who are on farms. My wife grew up on a farm. Her, fa her father was a small farmer. He had more than seven cows. He, you know, at first, it was cattle, not, not dairy. And he had usually, I don't know, 50 or 60. But he wasn't one of the giant conglomerates out in the Middle West. Uh, and people already have an emotional attachment to that. And it's very easy, as Scott said, to say these things are, are inefficient and, and, and not, not efficient producers. And he's right. Uh, but uh, the, the emotional attachment is very deep and uh, it's very difficult for politicians to say, you're not efficient. We're going to allow you to expire. Yeah. Some of it's just good branding. Organic is great branding. If you were to label those products grown in 100% sheep manure, you'd have a different selling proposition with the consumer. But <laughs> organic captured the high ground in language. And uh, 
good marketing on their part. <laughs> yeah, well, don't come to Scott for your marketing needs. <laughs> Let's turn now to what's happening on the Hill. I think some top Democrats this week kicked it off by saying it would be a week of quote unquote intensity, which is turning out to certainly be the case. Uh, Senator Rob Portman has argued recently that TAA and TPA should be separated from reconciliation. Essentially, he's arguing that these trade policies should be put in a separate package um, and there should be a trade bill. Is that a good idea? No. I mean, I give him credit for sincerity and, and good intentions, but I think it's an astoundingly bad idea. The various things he would like to put in the trade bill, I think, all have merit. And uh, we've, uh, Scott and I have talked about some of them before. We, we are in favor of trade promotion authority. Personally, I think the, some of the trade law amendments that he's put forward are, are, are good ideas. But, you know, the chances of a trade bill right now or this year in the U.S. Congress are, are virtually zero. There's not an appetite for it. They're busy on other things. The administration has been clear that they're not motivated right now to seek TPA uh, reauthorization. Uh, I've said over and over again, that's a mistake, but that's where they are. There's not going to be, uh, you know, a trade bill of any significance. So the consequence of what Senator Portman is, is advocating is simply meaning, you know, that we don't do TAA because he wants to take it out of the reconciliation bill, which means that people who really should be getting the extended benefits that expired at the end of June are, not, are going to continue not to get them. Uh, and we continue not to help our workers who have been in, adversely impacted by trade. We continue not to help them retrain and find new jobs. And he wants them to wait for something that I think is manifestly not going to happen anytime soon. So I think it's a big mistake. I would agree with Bill on the fact that the result won't be what the senator has in mind. However, I want to express my admiration for Senator Portman uh, as a former Ohioan and actually a former constituent of Rob Portman when he was Congressman Rob Portman from the third district of, uh, of Ohio. He's a very fine individual and has over the years been one of the more thoughtful members of Congress when it comes to thinking through policy. And so he's done that here. And I think he's actually right from a policy standpoint, but the practical effect of what he's proposing will be that not just you won't get a trade bill, you won't get TAA. So wish him the best. and. And want to want to clarify, I still admire uh, Senator Portman, but I think he's wrong here. All right. Well, that does it for this week's episode of The Trade Guys. Thank you all for tuning in. Be sure to check back in Monday morning at 10 a.m. to hear Ambassador Tai and stay tuned for next week's episode. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.